Safe protection to you, abiding happiness to, peaceful ease and well-being, loving kindness to you. <laughs> I'm afraid that the rest of the talk will be a bit of an anticlimax <laughs> after that, but uh, I want to actually, in a way, follow up from. Uh, both Sylvia's talk and Larry's talk. And Sylvia offered really three ways of exploring metta. She asked, uh, why do we do metta? How do we do metta practice? And then what happens? And you've been exploring what happens and I want to focus especially on what happens in metta practice and talk about a number of uh, ways that the practice can develop. But first I want to talk a little bit more about the uh, spirit of metta, really the, the core energy of metta or loving kindness practice or kindness practice or friendliness practice or warmth practice. All these different, all these different uh, qualities uh, get at the uh, nature of metta. And in a sense, it's simple. It's, this is a practice which we do in this training in which moment to moment here, we train to bring our being, our awareness, Towards, towards kindness and warmth, moment by moment. So it's a training. And the ultimate intention is to have that capacity to meet each moment, as Sylvia says, as a friend, to meet each moment with wisdom and kindness from the wise heart. We want to strengthen that capacity such that it can even be there in difficult moments, when we might more easily go to reactions or defense mechanisms or old habits that we think protects us. In that sense, uh, metta practice is one version of our, really our basic practice, which I like to think of most basically as learning to be responsive rather than reactive. And I've come to see that as a simple down-to-earth way to really get at the essence of the Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth is that there is suffering. And one way of talking about the second Noble Truth is there's suffering when we become compulsively reactive. The third Noble Truth is, is that it's possible to not be reactive, to come out of balance and uh, clarity and a kind heart. And the fourth noble truth is really a practical path for developing that responsiveness. And so I've been lately liking that simplicity. And metta practice is, is a way of letting us be more and more responsive and responsive from the heart as well as the wisdom. And we particularly focus on the 
aspect of the heart, but we know that it needs to be integrated with wisdom and with mindfulness and with uh, action in our lives. Our strategy with metta practice is to access that sense of kindness where it's most accessible, where it flows the easiest. And we, we really start there and we may well spend most of our time on this retreat. It would be very well, a uh, very good use of our retreat to just be here strengthening the uh, strengthening capacity for metta. You know, uh, cultivating those new neural pathways or strengthening the old ones, right? Uh, the meta neural pathways. And you may even feel at this, you know, at this moment in the retreat, gosh, I feel my nervous system is shifting a little bit. Anyone feel that? Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? There, there's a way we are retraining. And um, I don't know, I was going to say thank God for neuroplasticity. <laughs> but thank Thank Buddha for <laughs> neuroplasticity. So we, we train in that way. And it's really, it's, it's beautiful because, uh, again, part of what we know about the brain, but which we can know partly also from our practice, is that we can have 40-year-old, 50-year-old, 60-year-old habits, and they can be transformed. And I've seen that a lot some in myself, and and in others as well. Our meta practice, as we've said a number of times, is an intention practice. As I said, I think the first night, uh, it's an intention practice and not a production practice. And we incline with the phrases towards that sense of warmth or kindness. And we we simply do our best. We are coming forth moment to moment with that intention. One way that intention was said by uh, Shantideva in the 8th century, wrote a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, said it this way, whenever catching sight of others, look upon them with an open loving heart. We could add to that, whenever catching sight of oneself, (laughs) look upon oneself with that kind loving heart. Dr. King, uh, in developing the guidelines from the, uh, for the marchers in Birmingham in 1963, one of the guidelines for the marchers in that, right, that civil rights campaign said, walk and talk in the manner of love. <laughs> really similar, a little different language, different theological language. And I, I was also reflecting that... Uh, there's a term in, the, in Tibetan, really, and used a lot in Tibetan tradition, uh, Rinpoche, which some of you know because it's an honorific term for, for teachers, but it means precious one. And I was reflecting that um, a friend and I, for a period of time, we called each other Rinpoche, <laughs> you know, precious one. And feel free to include that in one of your phrases, precious one. Isn't that beautiful? You know, saying... You are a precious one. I am a precious one, which is true. I like in in Tibet, they also use Rinpoche 
not just for people, but Mount Kailash is called Gang Rinpoche, precious jewel of a mountain. The reason that metta can work is that our deeper nature is connected with metta. And that the, the challenges we, we find in metta are, I find, uh, not as deep as the quality of metta. Sometimes the analogies used that, that our, our deep being is like the sun and it's sometimes covered by the clouds. We think the clouds are ultimate reality, but they're covering up the sun. And in the text, this is often talked about, the Buddha talks about the luminosity of our being. There's a, there's a from one of the texts, luminous, are this mind and heart brightly shining, but they are colored by the attachments that visit them. This those who do not practice do not really understand. They do not cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous are this mind and heart brightly shining, and they are free of the attachments that visit them. This practitioners really understand, for them there is cultivation of mind and heart. And that quality of luminosity is, uh, in some of the texts, identified with metta. And it's said that there is this brightly shining quality of mind and heart. Brightly shining citta is the word. And uh, it's linked with the cultivation of metta. And it's said that the liberation of the mind and heart by metta shines and glows and radiates and is like the radiance of the moon. And this is what we're cultivating. And that sense of our being ultimately being radiant is found in many traditions. In the Tibetan Dzogchen tradition, There are three qualities of our basic being. One is luminosity. One is a sense of um, emptiness or transparency. And the third is a quality of compassion and responsiveness. these These are the deep qualities which we manifest. From the Thai forest tradition, from Achan Man, This mind is originally radiant and clear, but because passing corruptions and defilements come and obscure it, it doesn't show its radiance, it loses its radiance, like the sun when obscured by clouds. Don't go thinking that the sun goes after the clouds and said the clouds come drifting along and obscure the sun. And so we find this sense of uh, our deeper nature being metta from some of the great teachers. And what I also really love is we find often that spirit of metta in very ordinary people, just like us, at moments of need and at moments of crisis. 
very often. And maybe you know that from your own experience. And I, I was thinking of a few examples. Um, when I was in my early uh, 20s, we got some land in the Virginia mountains. And uh, my brother and I were building, wanted to build a cabin. We didn't have a lot of money. And the people from all around gave us all sorts of things to help us build the house. We tore down old outbuildings. People gave us spare wood lying around. We had old, uh, old copper sheeting for the roof and so forth. I think we ended up spending $1,400 <laughs> to build this uh, fairly good-sized cabin. And I was thinking that they were, there was just so much goodwill just coming out. And I loved also there was, at that time I had like a ponytail and like hair about halfway down my back. And I loved that some of the, some of the people we were closest to, they would ask me, I don't know, I don't want to, I'll do the accent. Okay. <laughs> I, hope, I hope this is okay. But they would say, Don, you seen any hippies? <laughs> Up there where you've been? <laughs> so that was... Um, I said, yes, I've seen some. <laughs> but there is this, this offering of uh, just this kindness that was manifesting. There was need, they could meet the need, there was friendliness. That's very basic metta, right? It's just the good heart being there and being open, being in a place where there weren't barriers to that. I guess they hadn't been, you know, reading the newspapers enough to really know what a hippie looked like. <laughs> and so, um, and I was also reflecting, there's some amazing stories of, um, of that goodwill that occurs during crises. And uh, yesterday morning over breakfast, we were talking, there was one of the cooks uh, lived in New York and actually saw the planes fly into the Twin Towers on September 11th in 2001. And he said that after that time, of course, there, there was tremendous sadness and loss. But he said, in the week or two after that, New York was the most wonderful and beautiful place to live. It was at its best. And there was nothing like it at that time. There was a sense of connection, togetherness, goodwill, basic friendliness. And that's there a lot. There's a, a writer named uh, Rebecca Solnit who wrote a, a book called A Paradise Built in Hell. And she studied mostly natural disasters. She also studied 9-11. And what she found, she said, in the wake of an earthquake, a bombing, a major storm, most people are altruistic, urgently engaged in caring for themselves and those around them both strangers and neighbors, as well as friends and loved ones. And she found that repeatedly, despite the fact that often the authorities, when they're crises, get really nervous and think they're going to be a breakdown of order and so forth. And, and generally the response is always the response of metta. And I, I thought I'd read a passage which I particularly like from um, Dorothy Day, who later became uh, very well known. <laughs> founder of Catholic Worker and so forth. And uh, she grew up in Oakland. And so she was in Oakland 
as an eight-year-old at the time of the earthquake in San Francisco. And she wrote this, What I remember most plainly about the earthquake was the human warmth and kindness of everyone afterward. For days, refugees poured out of burning San Francisco and camped in Idora Park and the racetrack in Oakland. Mother and all our neighbors were busy from morning to night cooking hot meals. They gave away every extra garment they possessed. They stripped themselves to the bone in giving, forgetful of the morrow. While the crisis lasted, people loved each other. While the crisis lasted, people loved each other. That's both, it's a very poignant statement, right? And so we are doing training so that after crises, we'll keep loving. (laughs) (laughs) And so I want to uh, talk uh, about how metta works in a few different ways. I want to, um, first of all, talk about metta as a way that we train to be able to lead more with our, with our kindness, with our hearts. To lead with that quality as we meet life, as Sylvia says, to meet each moment as a friend. And secondly, to talk about how, as part of that practice of metta, we develop concentration. Thirdly, we go through a process of purification. Fourthly, we connect, as part of the purification process or related, we connect our hearts to our, really our minds and our bodies. There's a process of integration that occurs. Fifth, we increasingly touch our own depths. We touch the depths of our own being increasingly. And then lastly, we bring it out into our everyday lives in the world. That's what happens with, with, with metta. We learn to lead with our hearts. We develop concentration. We go through a mysterious process of purification, <laughs> which is a big part, big part of all this. We, we integrate our minds, bodies, and hearts. We touch our depths, and then we bring it out into our lives. That's, that's what we're doing. So let me talk about each of those. So first, we really learn to let kindness, let the spirit of metta be more there as we meet each moment. And for some of us, this is really continuing how we've been often. For some of us, that training and leading with our hearts is to learn to live in a new way. You know, and I, I was thinking certainly for myself, Uh, I would say growing up as a man in the last part of the 20th century, I I was not trained to lead with my heart from the culture. I'm sure my my mom is here and she tried her best. (laughs) But I think the culture is very strong, certainly in terms of gender dynamics. And and so I knew I had a very kind and open heart. And that's that's certainly, that that was done very well. (laughs) <laughs> um, 
but it didn't always come out. There's some, one of the ways I knew that was that at certain movies I would cry. You know, I remember in college I cried at James Dean movies <laughs> and, and other movies. So I knew there was a good heart there, but generally I would meet, I would meet each moment um, much as a, a, a good analytical problem-solving fix-it person, <laughs> which has its value. But the, I, I would say that meeting it with kindness wasn't always there. And so metta has been a wonderful training. And in, in a way, I, I sense that starting in my 20s, there was a different kind of training going on, learning more to lead with my heart. Very, very important. And for many of us, that's a very crucial training that we're, that we're undergoing. And so some of us, we already lead well with our hearts and we're strengthening it. And for others of us, we're learning to do that. For some of us, we're learning to bring that kind heart to all the parts of our experience, as Larry has said several times, not leaving any part behind. For some of us, we lead with our hearts by bringing it to more difficult territories or bringing it to difficulties or bringing it to the parts of ourselves that we don't like or to our wounds, or towards even our trauma. In doing so, we see where we're not meeting each moment as a friend. A lot of the practice is to sometimes meet the moment as a friend, and sometimes we notice I'm not meeting as a friend. There's judgment, there's distraction, there's something else. And the practice really is to keep coming back and meeting each moment. And when I've done metta practice for the most sustained periods, that was really such a, a beautiful lesson. It was really to, I would notice, of course I would notice when I would be judgmental, you know, for example, in the dining hall. Anyone notice that any judgments occurring in the dining hall? <laughs> um, we might say, oh my, that person's going back for the second or third, whatever. I, I, we, we, won't, we won't inquire anymore about that. But it's, um, dining hall is a place for a lot of interesting dynamics at retreats. Okay. Is, that, is that true for you? <laughs> and so I might, so I might, I, I would really, I would notice when I was being judgmental or you know, really not very nice. And, that, and I felt in doing metta that if I had a statement like that, I had to come back immediately and kind of clean it up. and say, oops, four phrases of metta for that person. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a great daily life practice, right? I like to, I, I do that. We're not so much going into forgiveness practice, but it's wonderful. Make a small mess, clean it up on the spot, right? Can do that internally with metta practice. Um, but I would also notice that sometimes, even when there wasn't something harsh or aversive or judgmental, when I was just seeing someone and noticing someone, like that person is limping. For me, that would feel a little bit off. There wasn't that compassion that Larry is talking about. There wasn't that kind heart. And I have felt even with that, even when there wasn't negativity, I wanted to come back to that quality of metta and have that there, even linked with ordinary perception. 
as part of that sense of leading with the heart. As we do the metta practice more and more, and as it gets stronger, we can lead with our hearts even with difficulties. And there's a whole training in that, you know, to be, how can I be with kindness when there's a difficult interaction? This is not easy. You know, it involves developing capacities to be more empathic, to work with skillful speech and so forth. But the metta practice can really be there with difficulties, with difficult interactions. And I think I may, near the end of the retreat, talk more about that in in a little more depth. And it can be really an expression even of what I, I like to call tough metta. You know, we have tough love. There can be a metta is not about being nicey nice all the time, right? There can be metta and there can be kindness and there can be acting to set boundaries, to be firm, to say no, to act strongly. I mean, I think we know that by someone from someone like Dr. King, who was wanting to bring the quality of love in that, in his language, to very um, severe oppression. And, and be very firm, very strong, have a very strong way of doing that. King, King said this at one point, he said, when he, when I talk about love, I'm not talking about emotional bosh. I'm talking about a strong love. And so that can be also a way that we lead with the heart. There can be strength there. As we develop with our metta practice, we also strengthen our concentration. And in our meditation practice and our spiritual practice generally, concentration is very central. It's mentioned so much by the Buddha. It's on so many of the lists that we have where he, which are really teaching lists of the important qualities to develop. With metta, with the repetition, moment to moment, we're strengthening concentration. That coming back to the same focus over and over again is strengthening concentration in the mind. And classically, Metta was understood as one of the ways that one can access deep concentration states. At a certain point, the words can fall away and there's that sense of the feeling and it can get very strong and take one quite deeply. I like that the um, original word for concentration, samadhi, has more the connotations of gathering ourselves together or unifying our being. And it has less the connotation of a willful focusing, which is sometimes what we get from the word concentration, that it can be actually, and I think actually if we, in doing metta, it's actually helpful not to strive too much, not to try too hard with the phrases. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. Because the gathering or the unification of our awareness happens best by quite a lot of relaxation. And it's a kind of relaxing into being fully present. And there's a, there's a very important place for doing, for coming back with the phrases, 
We could call that a more active aspect of uh, samadhi practice. But there's also a receptive aspect of samadhi practice where we, where we have a kind of, uh, we come and we say the phrase and then there's a kind of resting. And it's not so, not so much a striving. You know, where there's, there's not so much a need, I'm going to do this with my concentration. You know, I have found often very helpful with concentration practice is, is to have uh, sometimes a sense of mystery, which is very helpful when you're repeating the same things all day long. <laughs> right? It can get a little bit tense, right? It can get a little bit tight. And we want to have this relaxed quality with the repetition. Where, and one, one thing I found very helpful was just maybe at the beginning of a session say, let me be with the mystery of how the heart develops, right? And I'll say the phrases, but that can help it not be too tense or too involve striving too much. There can be something very beautiful about doing the same thing over and over. The philosopher Kierkegaard says, purity of heart is to will one thing. And I know when I've done metta and other forms of concentration practice, there's a simplicity to it where I don't have to figure out what I'm doing <laughs> too much. I mean, there are ways of we need to be responsive moment to moment, but I'm doing the same thing. And there can be a certain ease in that. Have you felt that? It's just I can relax into that and really stay with that. Generally, I don't think this has been said in the hall, generally we stay with the phrases and the cultivation of the feeling of metta. And when thoughts or emotions are there and they're at uh, something like a moderate level or less, they're just coming and going, not real strong. We just let those be part of the background. We don't need to attend to them as we would with mindfulness practice. If something is quite strong, you know, that comes up, and this is connected sometimes with the purification process, maybe anger comes up and it's there for 10 minutes, then we would typically go more into mindfulness practice. We would attend to it. We wouldn't just keep, you know, the anger is like shouting at us, I'm here, I'm here, anger. And we, okay, may you be happy. <laughs> you know, we, we actually, if something is quite strong, it could be sadness, or something that really is taking our attention, we would come more with holding it with the spirit of metta, but really being mindful. What's, what's it feel like in the body? What's happening with, what storylines am I noticing? What's the emotional energy? And then maybe it, we do that some and it subsides, then we would go back to the phrases. But for most of the usual thoughts, we don't practice in the same way that we do with mindfulness, where we would want to keep tracking you know, thoughts as they come by. There's something interesting that happens as concentration deepens with metta practice is that at times the phrases, and maybe you've already noticed this, the phrases uh, are keep on happening. And yet it's not the discursive mind that's doing it. There's something that's going on and, and we actually can focus more on the feeling and the words are helping us, but they're a little bit behind the scenes. And I was thinking of this, there's a, there's a poem by Rumi, 
where he says, at night I open the window and ask the moon to come and press its face against mine. Breathe into me. Close the language door and open the love window. (laughs) The moon won't use the door, only the window. (laughs) But it's interesting, I think he's referring to the thinking mind, the continual discursive mind, and there's a way in which the metta phrases, sometimes they have to be somewhat discursive, but sometimes they're operating at a different level. And they can become increasingly there, happening. That's what I found, there's, there's a, the mind is really open and the phrases aren't just dominating our mind in some way. That can happen as we deepen in concentration. And that deepening in concentration is connected with increasing ease, uh, relaxation of our body and mind and heart, more stillness, more, more ability to, to notice thoughts as they come. To notice, oh, there was that thought went by, right? I'm sure you're noticing that sometimes. You're with the metta and you just notice a thought come by. And you can notice it more quickly when the mind's concentrated. And so what really is, I find, wise with a practice like this where we're keeping on coming back and developing that samadhi or that unification of our being is to have a kind of combination of relaxation and persistence. Call it relaxed persistence. (laughs) You know, um, so we want to really Keep coming back, have that persistence, stay with it. You know, something happens, just stay with it. Work with, you know, maybe work with that, something that helps you to relax. Maybe that phrase, let me just be with the mystery. And then stay, then work with the phrases. That helps me a lot. Um, Sometimes really emphasizing the receptive aspect. We say the phrases and we just let be whatever occurs and we're not trying to make anything happen. There's a very mysterious way that metta develops. You know, it's, have you noticed it's not linear? And, and there was, you know, when I was, I, I remember my first metta retreat, it was actually before there were a lot of metta retreats and I, I, I was practicing by myself and I don't think I had great instruction because I was um, kind of teaching myself. And it, it wasn't flowing so well. And I said, oh well, maybe metas for other people. I found myself saying that. And then over breakfast, when I wasn't even saying the phrases, I noticed I said to myself, I love you. <laughs> very, I was very touched. And, and Sharon Salzberg had a very similar story of her first meta retreat. It didn't feel like anything was happening much. And she's now, what, the queen of metta. <laughs> and some, nothing much was happening. She was called out of her retreat to attend to a difficulty in the community. And as she was, as she was kind of rushing, she knocked over a vase and she said to herself, you klutz. And then a moment later, she said, you may be a klutz, but I love you. <laughs> and again, it came out of, where did that come from? Where does 
where does the arising and that come from? So there's really a wisdom just to staying with it. And, and um, yeah, really staying with the process, being skillful with ways to have that combination of being receptive and having that effort. Sort of, we can call it proactive effort and receptive effort, very, very important. There's also this quality of purification, which can be very powerful. And in fact, concentration practice in itself is often called the purification of citta, we would say the purification of mind and heart. And I think that purification is used in two main ways. One is that we touch places in ourselves which are beautiful. We touch the beautiful states. We touch our radiance at times. We touch the, the metta flowing well. And there's also the second sense of purification is that we, we also touch that which is not metta. We touch that which seems to stand in the way of metta, whether it's our distraction, some part of ourselves that's um, in need of healing. Maybe our difficult emotions, our self-judgments. And both of those processes happen. And it's very important, I think, that both, both in a sense are going on at the same time. It's why it's really important, I think, to be with metta where it flows most easily. Because that really is bringing us to really taste the metta and really feel it and know that it's part of our being. Know that this is not an artifact, but that it actually reflects who I am. And to really have that process of so going with metta where it flows the easiest. And then the other, the other part is complementary and really actually sometimes requires that we have a certain amount of ease before we can also be with a certain amount of difficulty. And they really actually are necessary both for the process. And if, if for any reason purification doesn't feel like the right metaphor, you know, we might have the connotation, oh, oh, there's an impurity in me. And that may not be helpful in terms of language. I think we know by, the met, by our work with metaphrases that we're very sensitive to language. I think most of us or all of us. And so if purification is a metaphor that doesn't work for you, use transformation instead, or one, use marinating. <laughs> can use that. And meta-retreats uh, have the potential to stir up a lot. You know, we, I have found that uh, meta-retreats are more, uh, bring about more volatility in people's experience than mindfulness retreats. You know, and you, that surfaces in different ways. It surfaces in... Um, strong emotions coming up, it surfaces in sometimes in very strong dreams. How many of you have had unusually intense dreams? I remember talking with one person who came to me one morning and said, I had a dream last night in which I was an axe murderer. This isn't my true nature, is it? (laughs) And so I said, no, it's this happens and you know, all sorts of intense dreams happen. It's not a problem, you know, just it's not the real you unveiled. <laughs> you know, so um, it happens and, and I think probably all of us know there's, al- there's also 
There's also the way that difficult emotions come up, that anger comes up, that parts of our lives which are wanting attention come up. Maybe some grief, maybe some anger. Again, maybe a wound, maybe a relationship that needs attention, or maybe something from the past. And metta can really um, be a powerful way to work with what comes up in that way. I I thought I'd read you a story from uh, a person who's uh, done several metta retreats here. And she gave me permission to uh, read this story. This is about a certain kind of, we could say, purification process that came up in relationship to her father, who at this point she had not uh, seen for 20 years. Very difficult uh, relationship. And she writes this, I had a complex relationship with my father who died earlier this year. She's writing in, in 2014. During the first retreat, which was probably three or four years before she wrote this, as we worked with a difficult person, I chose him and became quite nauseous as I tried to offer him goodwill. I wasn't ready. And you'll see the guidance we give is don't go with the most difficult, difficult person. Let's go with, on a scale of 10, four or five. And so she was experimenting. <laughs> but the following year, with the steady presence and guidance of my teachers, who never doubted either me or the practice, I felt ready to do the work and had the courage to be present with whatever came up. Practicing with a difficult person comes well into the retreat when the mind and heart are so quiet, so open, and in my experience, exquisitely tender. On this day, I hung on every word of the morning instructions and felt my heartstrings gather and pull together gently and surely, carrying me into the practice. Earlier in the retreat, I decided to change the metaphrases I had been using for some time. As I'd lost some of their luster and juice, the new phrases, fresh and alive, brought new connection and inspiration to my practice. I settled into the morning, sit focused, concentrated and intent, as fully present as I'd ever been. Coming from an unnameable place, the new phrases effortlessly moved me along and I began to weep tears drenching my cheeks and dripping down my neck. As I mustered up the courage to direct the phrases to my dad, I heard my adult self say to my child self, it's okay, you can do this. And saw an image of me as I now am, take the younger me by the hand as if helping her to stand. In that moment, I decided that he could not have my new phrases. (laughs) They were mine, untainted and pure. So I gave him the old, stale phrases. (laughs) Just as an angry or betrayed child would give her best friend, whom she desperately wanted to forgive, but couldn't, the old stubby crayons and keep the brand new, sharply pointed ones for herself. When I realized what I was doing, I nearly laughed out loud as the huge boulder of grief and pain and loss that I'd been hauling around for 30 years began to crumble. I distinctly remember returning to the breath, 
gently touching the ground beside me with my right hand and steadying myself before truly offering my dad blessings of goodwill. Perhaps more than any other time before, I settled into practice and just let go. The phrases continued, but I wasn't directing them. If there was any remnant of doing, I wasn't aware of it. It just happened. Some part of me watched, another part listened, and what remained was just there. Utterly there, open, vulnerable, and willing. When the bell finally rang, signaling the end of the sit, I was thoroughly spent, unable to move. I sat there barely understanding what had happened. After a bit, I peeled myself off the cushion and went to another room to rest, lying quietly on my back, tears slowly streaming, I got it. I finally understood forgiveness in my bones. Over the next few days, I began to feel its relief, deeply palpable, beautiful relief. At this point, I hadn't spoken to my dad for 12 years and hadn't seen him for 20. After a week, about a week after the retreat, I decided it was finally time to call him. Our conversation lasted about half an hour. We talked all kinds of things, talked about all kinds of things, and remarkably, I actually enjoyed it. The experience was like talking to someone from my past, distant and distant from my very distant past. It was still him, I was still me, and that was it, no big deal. And yet it was everything. So I don't mean to say that to build you up to <laughs> be in tension for the difficult person day and make a big thing out of it, but it does, it does point to the possibilities. This is someone who was experienced in metta quite a bit. And those possibilities really of, of um, working with what, what's there, the residue from the past, the self-judgments, really seeing those and bringing, bringing the kindness and working with, working with what comes up in that way. I'll be a little briefer with the last three of these ways that metta works. The fourth is that there's a kind of integration of our mind, heart, and body. That we, in a way, develop the heart and we increasingly connect it with our wisdom, with our mindfulness. We've been encouraging also ways that the metta practice can be more embodied, can be not just with the words, but really felt in our, in our being. And there's, I think, some, there's some other practices which we'll do as the retreat progresses. I have one other practice, particularly to develop, uh, help develop uh, metta in a more embodied way. And so we've seen that metta really, as it matures, has the qualities of compassion, has the qualities of the mindfulness, has the qualities of wisdom. And when, you know, when in our practice at home, it's wonderful to do metta, also to do mindfulness. And in a way, doing all those together permits what uh, my, one of my Tibetan teachers, uh, Mingyur Rinpoche, calls mingling. That when we do several practices, they mingle and they inform each other. 
The same thing when we practice loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. They mingle with each other and they do so quite naturally without trying to make them mingle. And that's, that's a reason really to have the metta practice be the continuous. It brings that sense of the uh, kind heart there. And I think I, I find it very important also to have the metta be embodied, to have that sense of having that presence to our body as we're offering metta. So for some of us, the feeling of metta can really be the felt sense in the body. As we wish someone well, we can imagine that person is present and see what does that feel like? For some of us also, there can be a quality of the metta as radiating out from the heart, sometimes a more energetic quality of metta, working with the energy of the body and coming out from the heart. And that can also have the metta be very embodied. Larry mentioned last night the sense of a traditional image of the, or the, the teachings are like a bird that has the wings of wisdom and the, wis- and the wing of compassion. And there's, there's a, there was a very interesting development in the 20th century in the Vietnamese Buddhist communities. There was in the face of the struggle against colonialism, there was uh, a modification of that age-old teaching. And they said, we need wisdom, we need compassion, and we need courage. And I've often thought of that as like the bird, that's the body of the bird. Or that the courage is like the body aspect, the way we, we bring the wisdom and compassion into action so that we have the mind, the heart, and the body present. As we continue with our practice, there'll be moments when we touch something deeper in ourselves. We touch a sense of elation or a sense of joy or a sense of the metta really flowing. And they're beautiful, beautiful moments like that. And the metta practice can direct us towards those moments, towards that sense of the, the radiance of our being, the radiance of our mind and heart that, again, in the tradition are connected, connected with metta. And we can feel that at times, again, sometimes not on demand, but simply occurring, sometimes mysteriously in a given moment. You know, I know in one of my retreats, um, I think it was, a, it was Valentine's Day and I was doing a lot of metta and something happened. I think it was um, in the retreat, the teacher had us actually wish well face to face with someone else, which we usually don't do so much. And something got activated and the metta just came out and it was very alive and I started feeling metta for the trees, for everything. And it was there, it was like everything deserved love. And it actually reminded me of a time when I had um, dental surgery. (laughs) (laughs) And I had uh, had received at birth like the uh, upper jaw of my mother and the lower jaw of my father, right? (laughs) It might have been opposite. (laughs) And so, you know, my 
main contact with the mortality of the body has been through my teeth. <laughs> I've had a lot of dental work, and I had at one point I had a dental surgery that broke my jaws and realigned them. And they had to put me to sleep. And so it was general anesthesia, which I've since learned. I have a colleague who worked a lot with, in the medical area, and she said that actually general anesthesia is much closer to death than people acknowledge. And I had, for 10 days after the surgery, I was in a totally altered state. When I came out of the surgery, I looked around and there was, it was a combination actually, I felt some fear, but I would alternate between fear and love. And there was love for everything. I felt the fragility of everything. I felt the mug in my hospital room was fragile and precious. And, and, and I'm sure you've had moments something like that, where there's some sense of the fragility of life. And we can feel that sometimes here on the retreat. So we learn to lead with our hearts. We develop in the concentration or the unification of our being. We often go through a process of purification. We integrate the mind and heart and body. We at times touch our, the depths of metta, and then we bring it out into our lives in a very, often a very simple way, very ordinary way, sometimes special way. And we'll talk more about that towards the end of the retreat. And I think I just want to end with a very ordinary story that really shows the sort of the simplicity of metta. And we're cultivating metta so that the moments of metta expressing in our everyday lives will be more. Or so the training will be there. So the neural pathways will be there. And we, having done some of the purification work, worked with some of our challenges, when those come up, we won't be as inclined just to go right to reaction. But maybe metta is a choice or a possibility at that time. So I'm going to end with a story from a friend who, who died several years ago. It's a man named Tom Potterfield who was one of my students. And he later became the uh, president of the Institute for Transpersonal Psychology. And Sylvia knows him, knew him. And he died too young. And he, he wrote a lot. Um, he, he developed a form of cancer. And this is what he wrote um, in that process. The past few weeks have been tough. The chemo treatments take a lot of willpower to navigate, in addition to knocking me down physically. They also bring on an emotional and spiritual darkness that drags me to the borderlands, a dry, barren, lonely place of scarred memories, dead tiredness, and frayed hopes. It takes all my strength to grind it through and not give in to the temptation to give up. My work is always a great help with this by dragging me out of my head to focus on something far more important to me. I'm so grateful for that aspect of my life. Also, I found that almost every time something wonderful comes along to restore hope. Sometimes it is just uh, his wife Donna's smile or his daughter Katie's 
loving presence. Sometimes it is a beautiful vista with happy cows <laughs> or horses. It could be one of my canine buds giving an especially sweet, enthusiastic greeting or a student doing well and having a great experience at the school. And sometimes it is something more dramatic and amazing. This past week, I, weekend, I had a big problem. I have a pick line, a small tube that is threaded through a vein from my arm across my chest to my heart. It prevents damage to my veins from the chemo infusion. It sounds creepier than it really is. On Sunday evening, the damn thing broke and I had to go into the emergency room. Of course, the specialist in such things wasn't on duty and I had to, I had to wait in the ER until Monday morning. It was pretty miserable. It was yet another reminder of how far from normal my life is. I was feeling down and sorry for myself. I felt spiritually dry at that moment. I prayed for some lightness and joy to come to me and to feel connected to my spiritual life. During the night in the ER, a janitorial staffer came into my room to remove the trash. I said, hello, and our eyes connected for just a fraction of a second. Jose left the room and came back with two heated blankets and proceeded to tuck me in very gently and carefully. He then told Donna and me about his own struggles and how people praying for him saved his life. We talked about faith and hope and, how, and then he went on his way. A brief and lovely moment that lifted my spirits and made me feel very thankful. There are amazing people everywhere and sometimes they rise up to give us a hand when you need them most. It's good to try to be a person like that. That's our practice. To intend to be a person like that and then go through the process. So that's our practice. So thank you very much for your kind attention and especially for your practice. Thank you.